afternoon. Welcome to the panel. RNZ National, Anton Matthews, Heather Roy with you today. Can I just clear something up before we go on? I want to clarify that um, I read out a text that they thought Santa wasn't real. I didn't say Santa wasn't real. Wallace Chapman did not say that. In <laughs> fact, Santa has uh, Santa came down the uh, Chapman chimney last year, and I hope that Santa continues to come down the Chapman chimney in 2024, uh, and on it goes. So I did not say uh, Santa. Uh, wasn't real. Someone's saying, I just had the kids in the car. So anyway, there we are. Clarification. (laughs) Finance Minister Grant Robinson today said that next week's budget will contain $4 billion of savings and reprioritizations over the next four years, mostly going towards funding agencies' existing cost pressures. So where was that $4 bill from? Programs like the public Media merger, Gone Burgers, the clean car upgrade and social leasing schemes curtailed the funding associated with the affordable water reforms and COVID programs no longer needed. And uh, he dashed any hopes of a tax cut in the budget. Meanwhile, food prices rose 12.5% in April, the largest increase since 1987. To explain the numbers, we have Miles Workman, Senior Economist at ANZ. Kia ora, Miles. Kia ora. First to the food prices, is it worrying to see such an acceleration in grocery food price growth? I mean, 22.5% up for fruit and veggie. Yeah, well, it's a big worry, of course. I mean, we're looking at necessities inflation here, and that means households that don't make a lot of money, uh, you know, they're living paycheck to paycheck, well, they really feel the pinch. Uh, So this type of inflation, we're talking rents or housing or food, that is the particularly nasty kind. Okay, so $4 billion in savings to re- be reprioritised, pulling all those pennies together. Is a billion dollars a year really that much in the scheme of things? No. Look, it's, it's really small, actually. Um, for context, in December last year, uh, the Treasury were forecasting core crown expenses would come in a little over $129 billion. Uh, you rewind to pre-COVID, that figure was $87 billion in the 2019 fiscal year. So between 2023 and, and 2019, uh, expenses have lifted $42 billion. So after reprioritizations, that's $41 billion. That's a rounding error. Okay. Wow. Uh, it will go mainly towards funding agencies' existing cost pressures. So it looks like money just to keep up miles. That's right. I mean, that's the unfortunate nature of this economy. It is wonky. Uh, We have, you know, CPI inflation running near a multi-decade high, uh, and that means the cost of delivering peak uh, government services is increasing. But at the same time, uh, if the government's going to increase spending, which it looks like it's going to, I mean, these reprioritizations don't necessarily mean the government's going to be spending less overall. They still have all this extra cyclone spending to add to the economy. Uh, if that's inflationary, stimulatory, stimulatory um, perhaps the Reserve Bank is going to have to off- offset that with a higher than otherwise OCR. Right. I want to start with Anton Matthews in Ototahi there. And Anton, I want to know because you, you're across a number of, uh, with the Hustle Group, a number of uh, eateries. How are you when it comes to handling food prices? And when you're doing your ordering for the eateries, how are you finding this? 
Um, yeah, look, I mean, we're we're no different from from every other household. You know, we buy fruit and veggie and meat in the same market as everyone else, so we're all kind of fighting over the same stuff. Yeah, look, our our margins have certainly been eroded over the last twelve. Um, 12 to 18 months, we've seen a huge rise in our cost of goods. And so I think for us, you know, we've had to look at creative ways to um, lift our prices, but also provide opportunity for people to still come and dine. So like, for example, one of the things that we've done, it it used to be that every burger that went out came with chips. Um, We've now um, dismantled that meal so that you can buy the burger on its own. The the burger has had to go up in price a little bit, but overall the cost... um, We've managed to keep the cost down, ah. so you don't have to buy the chips. You're not forced to buy the chips, but the options there if you wish to. So I think it's just about thinking outside of the box and being creative. Oh. Um, you know, and making sure that you've got really kind of robust procurement processes, and you're looking for partnering with businesses that you know can. Uh, it's not so much about the price; it's actually more about making sure you can ensure good supply. And um, once you put right? something on the menu, oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's um, yeah, it, it won't come as any surprise that it's hard to get your hands on basic ingredients like um, bacon and eggs and chicken and bread, you know, that, that, that can be hard as well. So it's not even, uh, it's not even just a question of what's the cheapest and most affordable product. It's actually about what's the most reliable product and can I guarantee supply? Um, That's also a major issue for us. That's quite fascinating to me. I didn't know that actually. So supply, supply is as essential uh, as the price when it comes to uh, working uh, in that sector. Stay there, Miles. Let's bring Heather Roy in as well. Comments and questions. Yeah, thanks, Wallace. Um, I'm pleased that Miles mentioned the, that really this billion dollar of saves, billion dollar of savings every year is really just a, a rounding error because I was going to to make that point too. Um, two things really disappointed me with the speech which I've read this morning made by the Minister of Finance. Firstly, there was no mention of productivity in it anywhere, and if New Zealand's going to be able to dig ourselves out of this hole that we've got ourselves into, actually we need to be much more productive as a nation. As individuals, we work really hard, but we don't produce enough. And and um, if we're ever going to be a wealthier nation, then we need to turn our minds to that. And it seems like the government's sort of given up on that. So I'd be interested in Miles' comment about that. The other thing is that the um, Minister of Finance also said that there will be some debt go, um, increase going towards the funding of budget initiatives next week. And um, that bothers me too. You know, we're, we're handing our children and our grandchildren debt that they're going to have to find some way of paying back in the future it's not you know it's not something that we can ignore and I'd be interested in Miles's comments about that too Miles yeah well I mean totally agree productivity is the key it is really for a long run increase in, in real wages productivity labor productivity in particular is the only way to get there you, you cannot regulate wages higher if it's just going to lead to uh, in, increased labour costs to firms which then they pass that on to CPI inflation and you, you go nowhere in the long run labour um, productivity is what should be the key focus for policy um, but it's, it's a tough nut to crack I would say uh, it's uh, uh, the biggest challenge I think uh, for any government to try to try and get a get ahead of and um, sometimes it's just a lot easier to regulate wages higher or, yeah. or to spend more money uh, and, and, and cross your fingers so, you yeah, can yeah. you can see though, Miles. You know, even as of this week, there are, and we talked about it also. Heather, you have been thinking with the New Zealand Defence mm. Force. There are significant cost pressures there, Miles, that really must be addressed across education, across health. That's just a start. 
Yeah, and that, that's that point of that delivering key government services is just so much more expensive than before uh, because of this inflation. And in a way, it's part of it is symptomatic of, of the amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus that was delivered to this economy. Uh, I mean, for context, our unemployment rate is near a record low, um, so there's plenty of demand for labour out there that's bidding up labour costs, and that's labour costs to the government as well. So that, in at least part, is a function of this highly stimulatory fiscal environment we've seen post-COVID. Uh, so in a way, it's um, you know a, a, a conditions of partly their own making. Right. Just finally, Miles, I want to know, our debt sits at around 19% of uh, GDP. How do we sit in the OECD? Well, yeah, that's very low, actually, um, which is a good thing. So that's good, right? Small, that, that is good, yes. We're, we're a small open economy. We're uh, vulnerable to external shocks, and, and we sort of swing in the winds of global forces. So it's a good thing that we run low government debt. But on the other side of the uh, economy, the private sector, we actually maintain quite high levels mm. of private sector debt. So having low public sector debt is actually a good offset to that. Okay. If you want to think about us from a New Zealand economy-wide perspective, uh, just take a look at our net external liability position or our current account deficit. These metrics show that uh, yeah, uh, low government debt is, is very much needed because we are out of balance uh, from that external sector perspective. Good on you, Miles. Lovely to have you on the programme. Kia ora. That's Miles Workman there, Senior Economist at ANZ. Uh, 17 past four. Uh, by the way, just a little, little bit of... Um uh, just a bit of acknowledgement here while you're here, Anton. Uh, I'm going to indulge you for a bit. Anton Matthews is a legend. Our kōtero goes to Kura with his son, and last year Anton and his whānau shouted the entire Kura to see the Lion King in Te Māori, and our kids loved it. So there you go, Anton. bit of feedback for you. It's very kind. Tēnā koe wa. 18 past four of the panel. This is really uh, quite a contentious issue and I can't wait to talk about it with our panellists. Would you support extraction of 50 million tonnes of the seabed annually for 35 years to extract iron, titanium, which connects really well with bone, you'd know that if you have a hip replacement, and vanadium, it makes steel really strong, extremely important minerals. That's what one company wants to do. A call for the first reading of a member's bill banning seabed mining altogether was voted down last night in Parliament, with Labour National and Act turning in 100 votes, 106 votes against. Te Pāti Māori co-leader Debbie Ngārewa Packers' bill asks for a nationwide ban on seabed mining consents within Aotearoa's exclusive economic zone and the coastal waters governed under the RMA. Is there a place, any place, for seabed mining in this country? Yes or no? I want to hear from you today. 2101. James Hita is seabed mining campaigner, Greenpeace Aotearoa. Kia ora, James. Kia ora, thank you for having me. I guess you'd be in the no camp. <laughs> Most definitely. I think, you know, seabed mining has the potential to be an exponentially destructive industry to the waters of Aotearoa, and it makes no sense to prioritise, you know, extractive industries over the protection of Timuana Nui Akiwa. Bit of interest in there, wasn't there? 13,000 submission submissions on this. What are a couple of key points from your point of view for our listeners today? 
yeah, well, you know, if we look at Trans Tasman resources, for example, they are looking to mine in an area that is home to uh, pygmy blue whales, uh, kororā, the little blue penguins, Maui dolphins, you know, all of these kind of creatures that we know are already suffering, uh, and we're really thinking about adding the potential for a sediment plume that travels all the way down to Te Whanganui Atara, Wellington. It doesn't make sense to me. They say, and their chair, Alan Eggers, said that mining Nepatia would create a major new $1 billion export industry. You've got best practice, they say, sustainable mineral recovery. Aren't there some positives? No. No, there aren't. Uh, you know, we can spin it any which way we want to. Uh, but at the end of the day, Alan Eggers is set to make profit from this and, and that's why he's pushing this. You know, we took Trans Tasman resources along with Ngāti Anui and um, the, uh, you know, movements like Kiwis Against Seabed Mining through three of the highest courts of our, our country and it found that there would be material harm uh, committed by the seabed mining and that they, they needed to reconsider their options. Okay, all right, uh, big, lots of no's. One says, yes, mine the seabed with 20% profit to government. We need the money to pay for infrastructure. Heather Roy. Yeah, look, I haven't followed this debate very closely, I have to say, and I would have liked to have listened to the speeches um, in Parliament last night. I think that um, I would have been a lot better informed had I had I been. It seems to me that we don't like mining and and the negative sides of it, but we like the pro- we like the product and the uh, the convenience and the uh, need for the products that are mined, and we have to find some way of negotiating that tightrope. Uh, so that we don't destroy the environment, but we do have the things that we need from it. Uh, and look, I, I don't, I couldn't answer your question with a, a clear yes or no because I don't right. feel well enough informed, to be honest. But I do think that if if 106 votes in Parliament were against th- that particular bill. Uh, then there's a reason for that, and I'd like to be better informed on that too. It's interesting hearing from the Greenpeace perspective, but I'd like to hear the other side of the story. Yeah, OK, stay there, James. Let's bring Anton in. Um, James. Um, yeah, look, I mean, I, I watched Debbie's uh, kōrero um, today. I, th- I thought she spoke very passionately. I mean, there, there does seem to be a resounding op- uh, resounding opposition to this particular kaupapa, especially from Papu and Iwi, and I guess Te Pāti Māori were just doing what they promised to do, which is be a voice for those people in Parliament. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I suppose from a kaitiakitanga point of view, the question's pretty simple. Um, are we behaving as good ancestors for our tamariki and our mokopuna, yes or no? If the answer is yes, then go ahead. If the answer is no, or if there's any doubt, that's usually a good sign that we need to pause, reconsider, and make a better plan. But, um, yeah, like Heather, I, I haven't actually been following the kaupapa that closely, but I did I did yep. see Debbie's court today, and um, I actually thought she spoke quite well. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm not Yeah, anyway. Yeah, no, very good. Kia ora, uh, both of you. And James, I know that even, uh, well, not even uh, David Parker said there are, it is contentious and uh, uh, and certainly the response here uh, is uh, leaning towards the no. But you've got these minerals, you've got the likes of, I mean, these uh, are embedded into our society, the likes of iron, titanium in healthcare medicine, vanadium, very, very important in construction. Our very standard of living, including mine and probably yours, is absolutely dependent on the resources industry. These minerals, James Hitter, 
they're essential. They've got to come from somewhere. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. Um, you know, we obviously need to, to continue to live. Um, but my argument would be that we don't need to go looking in the seafloor for these minerals or metals. Um, one of the biggest arguments um, is uh, around electric vehicles. But, you know, the market of EVs is actively rejecting the industry because it's so harmful. So you've got major companies like Volvo, Rivian, BMW, Volkswagen, Scania, Renault, uh, who've all signed a business statement saying that they will not use deep sea mine minerals or metals in any of their supply chains. And they're joined by the likes of tech companies, um, you know, Samsung, SDI, Google, Philips, Razor. Uh, so there are all of these companies who have recognised that the destruction is not worth uh, what they get back in return. Um, and I would argue that actually if we look to have a, a more circular uh, relationship with the planet um, across everything, um, that actually we can look to urban mine, we can look to recycle better um, and actually think about the stuff that we take from the planet. Did you say you look to urban mine over seabed mining? Yeah, so urban mining taking from our waste. Oh, okay, got it, yeah. Yeah, recycling what we what we have in our pockets. So old phones sitting in the drawers. I bet you, you know, almost every listener has an old phone sitting in a drawer somewhere. Okay. Um, let's, let's use that first. We don't need to go looking in the seabed. That's James Hitter, the seabed mining campaigner from Greenpeace Aotearoa, firmly in the no camp when it comes to uh, seabed mining. Uh, what do you think? Uh, email me at the panel at rnz.co.nz. I'm with Heather Roy this afternoon, also Anton Matthews. Now, to this, we talked about the iconic rally 22 weeks back, and we got quite the response on that. But also, are you going to, Wallace, talk about the coolest of the cool? And I said, what is that? And they said, the chopper. We all thought that we were John and Poncherello and chips, didn't we? Your big banana seat, glitter, if you were lucky. You had your flag and even had not one but three gears. And with us right now is Katrina in Wellington. Kia ora, Katrina. Kia ora, panel. Now, did you own a chopper? Oh, I didn't own a chopper when they first came out, but when I had the opportunity to purchase one as a teenager, I took it. I grew up riding Rally 20s recycled from the Auckland inorganic rubbish collections and yeah. in the 1980s. They weren't so cool, but um, I've hung on to my choppers, my collection, as I've got a bit older, and delight in embarrassing the children riding them around the waterfront as they <laughs> were on their scooters <laughs> and such. And um, I, I just think that they're great to this day. Give me a... Do me out your three-speed gear shifter any day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm closing my eyes. I see you. your hands on the gear. You've got that three-speed. It was it was fancy. Well, it, and it is fancy, isn't it, Katrina? Oh, still fancy. And yes, if you had the glitter seat, it was all on. And um, I, I think that they're a great thing to hang on to. I've still got one hanging in the hallway for the aesthetics as part of sort of the art collection. And we just love them. Oh, God, you are a fan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, Katrina. Uh, Anton, are you listening to this? I mean, are you? Uh, did you grow up with a Rally 20? Maybe an HMX or a chopper? I didn't grow up with a Rally 20 or a chopper. Either I wasn't cool enough or um, perhaps it was a little bit before my time. Yeah, um, yeah no, I was. I had a mountain bike, though. It was pretty cool. Uh, yes. Did a wee bit of a couple of times. But no, didn't, uh, didn't have a chopper, unfortunately. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> Katrina, right, I'm, I'm quite envious. Sounds cool. <laughs> time's going to roll around soon, and one of those days, the electric bike companies will get back onto it and make them a bit easier getting up these Wellington hills. But yeah. Let the inner rebel out, fly your flag hard. The only time I was ever pulled over by the police was when I was flying a Jolly Roger on my chopper in Christchurch Central, and yes, I did get a ticket. No helmet, which I rectified the next day to get off the ticket. You're the What's panel. You're the panel listener of the week because you're pre- you're, you're you're pure rock and roll, Katrina. All the way. Oh, again, you know, let the inner child live, let the rebel out, and gosh, you know, if you can't have fun, what are you doing? Exactly, Katrina Kiota. Thank you for your time. And listen to that uh, was uh, William, who also had a chopper. Hi, William. Hello, Wallace. Did you, um, I mean, you heard Katrina there, the pure rock and roll. Was that you too? Oh, not at all, no. My experience of the rally chopper was uh, my sister's bicycle that she had when she was a 10-year-old growing up in West Wales. And I tried that bike out, and uh, I thought it was very unstable and didn't fancy it at all. And shortly after that, she fell off that bike and uh, suffered a hairline fracture to her skull. Um, she, she was okay afterwards. She's all right today. But I wouldn't recommend that bike. Okay, so you really uh, put in the uh, yeah put in the ice on the chopper. Uh, are you hearing this, Heather Roy? Yeah, it's I being am. sensible, isn't it, when you're riding the <laughs> chopper? Isn't it? Yeah, no. Look, I sort of looked enviously at people with Rally Twenty bikes because I had a very old yeah. second-hand one, but it still got me to school faster. But in terms of motorbikes, no, I, I can ride a trail bike, but that's about as far as it goes. Yes. I do wonder how these guys feel about deep sea um, mining. Well, William, hold the thought on the deep sea mining. You can email me about that. I want to hear about your chopper. So really, the memories uh, aren't quite so good. Not so good on the chopper, but I didn't realise you were discussing the Rally 20 as well. Yeah. Um, I, I had a Rally 20 that I inherited from my father because he bought it um, when there were fuel restrictions in the UK, and he was a GP. He needed to get, get around the countryside, Um, And when the restrictions were lifted, uh, he didn't need the bike anymore, so I took it to London. And I used to ride that bike around London in all traffic. It was a fantastic way of getting around. It's a design icon. William, lovely to have your company this afternoon, uh, and thanks for um, listening to us. No to seabed mining. And (laughs) There you go, Heather. He got it in. (laughs) Um, William there and Katrina in Wellington. It is 4.30. You're on the panel this afternoon. Thursday afternoon, we have Anton Matthews and Heather Roy with me. It's time for Headlines with Marama Tepoli.